10. So I listened to about 14 chapters in one commute today. I listened to it through the Bible app. Just look up Bible, download the app. I listened to the Bible about 1.5, double the speed, two speed, and that's because it just makes it flow a little bit faster for me, but you pick what works for you. But either way, I want you to see this as a sign right now in your life to get to know Jesus in a way you have never known him before. This is your year to do that. As your church, I'm going to take, as a pastor in your church, I'm going to take you through this book verse by verse by verse. You're going to hear the entire story of the gospel of Matthew. But if you do not put something into it, you can't withdraw something out of it. It's like a bank. You've got to make your deposits. So this is what I want to ask from you is that every week you at least read where I'm at. So every Saturday, I put up a post like this on Facebook. You can read ahead. Read the chapter ahead. Boom, it just comes out like this. Or now you can take this week to read the chapter. Once again, I listened to 14 chapters in one commute on the way here today, okay? No excuses. Put into the Word of God your time. Put into the Word of God your passion and your heart and receive out of it all that God has for you. Would you put up the timeline, please? I want to show you a little bit about Matthew. He was a disciple of Jesus, a tax collector that gave his heart to the Lord. You'll read about him actually in Matthew chapter 10. Here's a summary of his gospel. Starts off with the genealogy of Jesus, then John the Baptist, then Jesus being born in Bethlehem. It continues to show that Jesus had to flee to Egypt. Egypt, came back to Nazareth, uh, Nazareth. then at the age of 12, he goes to the temple. He's a carpenter for most of his young adult age, uh, his life there. And then he starts his ministry at the baptism when John baptizes him around 30 years old. Then he uh, gets Matthew to become a disciple. He's, you know, crucified and resurrected. And then after that, Matthew writes the gospel around the 50s. So Jesus is born right around 5 B.C. They're doing their best guess, you know, crucified somewhere around, you know, 28 to 30 uh, A.D. You know, of course, he's splitting time right there. And then a few years after he ascends to heaven, then Matthew writes down his gospel. And then the destruction of Jerusalem happens, which is a key event in the history of Israel, because that is their homeland, and they had not been given back that homeland until the 1940s, which begins the uh, signs of more of the times. The last day started technically in the book of Acts on Pentecost, but the last day of the last days starts when Israel becomes a nation again. So they had been separated from their homeland from 70 AD to 1940. That's pretty amazing, amen, that God keeps his word like that. So let's go to chapter 1 of Matthew. Some things that you may find interesting about Matthew is he was a tax collector. That means he wasn't, you know, a righteous person, you know, doing the right thing. He's a sinner. He gives his heart to Jesus, just like most of us here. And the idea is, is that if God can use Matthew, a tax collector, he can use you. Tax collectors in those days were a little bit shady. They were kind of looked at like mafia members. You know, they kind of had a crime syndicate, and they used collecting taxes for Rome as a way to get more money out of you. So not a guy that you would really pick as one of your first disciples if you were thinking like I want the best, you know, the most moral, but God is showing us even through people that have mistakes that God can use them. And then, you know, a lot of them were fishermen and you guys know about that. And we'll learn about Peter and James and John and uh, and those guys. And Andrew was Peter's brother and James and John were brothers. Also another interesting fact is that you got four gospels in your New Testament. 27 books of your New Testament. New Testament means new covenant. It's how God is going to deal with the world through Jesus. 
Think of the Old Testament as that which has Jesus concealed. He's showing up and doing things in mystery, but then when he's revealed, now we have the new covenant. In the old covenant, he's giving us the Ten Commandments plus 603 other laws for a total of 613, and uh, Leviticus and those kinds of books of the Bible. The prophets are telling the people they're doing things wrong, but more importantly, they're talking about the first and second coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus that we're about ready to read here has a good portion of the Old Testament talking about it, starting from Genesis chapter uh, 3, where where, uh, Adam and Eve sin, and the father says to them that you are going to give birth to a child, and your child is going to crush the serpent, that one that tempted you, and as he crushes the serpent, the serpent's going to strike his heel. There's your first prophecy of God coming in the flesh, being the Messiah. This Messiah figure we're going to learn about today is the anointed one, the king of Israel, okay? We're going to learn about that, but starting from Genesis all the way to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, it's all about Jesus' first and second coming. Now, let me ask you a question. Out of all those 39 Old Testament books, what do you think they talk about the most, Jesus coming the first time or him coming back the second time? Not even close, second time. So think about how significant Jesus' first coming was, baby in a manger, born in Bethlehem, all of those wonderful prophecies. There is many, many, many more about him coming back, judging the world, establishing his kingdom. That's why after he's raised from the dead in the book of Acts, which starts the Acts of the Apostles, the Acts of the Church, the number one question the disciples want to ask the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus is not what it was like in heaven, not what it's going to be like in hell, not what all the, the, the signs of the times are. They want to ask one thing, when are you starting your kingdom and is it now? Because the entire Old Testament is all about the Garden of Eden lost and it being regained. The first coming was just the introduction. It was what we needed to get entrance into the kingdom. But what we're doing now is establishing the kingdom so that when Christ comes back, we rule and reign with him for a thousand years and that's how the world ends and then it restarts only with the Christians and the rest go to the lake of fire. Judgment day on earth, Armageddon is just the beginning of the millennial reign. In other words, God gives us a thousand years of paradise because of what we had lost and what Jesus gained back. Us being ethereal and a new heavens and new earth does not happen until after the thousand year reign. So a simple timeline is this. Jesus in the cross, preach the gospel to the whole world, judgment comes, thousand years of him ruling and reigning as a literal king and us being like superheroes with him. We can't die. We'll have resurrected bodies like him, able to walk through walls, and we will rule and reign over the earth and the citizens here. And the Bible says even a baby will live to be 100 years old. Some of them will live the whole time. And then after that, the ultimate judgment comes to the lake of fire. Those who have done evil, hell will be jumped into there. Think of hell like a county jail and the lake of fire being the penitentiary after the judgment. And then think about heaven being the resort as you wait to come to be on the new earth. And then once you're here on the new earth, you never go back to heaven again. You're only a disembodied spirit until Jesus comes to establish his kingdom for a 1,000 years. And so when they're getting kicked off to to the lake of fire, the whole entire solar system and universe gets recreated. The Bible says heavens and earth will flee away. If you've ever watched the Matrix, when they're in between the different worlds, you know, they get plugged in and it's all white and they grab their guns and all that, the Bible literally says that he is going to erase the entire universe and then start again. But remember, that doesn't happen until he rules and reigns for a thousand years. Book of Matthew, are you ready? 
It's the start of that journey. Now, Matthew is one of four Gospels. Matthew is a disciple writing the Gospel. A couple things about this. A lot of skeptics in our day try to put the Bible down. One of the things they'll say is, well, it doesn't say it's written by Matthew. Well, what they don't understand is that no biography ever puts, uh, the author ever puts their name in there. That's not what you do. That would be wrong in that time. So they don't talk about themselves when they're talking about somebody else. This is not an autobiography. It's not written by Jesus, about Jesus. And when you write about somebody else in these times, you wouldn't put your name. How do we know this was written by Matthew? Church history tells us. Church history tells us Matthew wrote this. Now, somebody may say, well, how can you prove it? Well, if you want to get that nitty-gritty about it, what difference does it make whether Matthew wrote it or not? What matters is what he wrote is true. We don't know the author of the book of Hebrews, but I believe it's true, which then asks another question. How do we know the books of the Bible are true? We do not take the books of the Bible just based on church history and their name. We take it based on the canon. Everybody say the canon. Thank you. The canon is how we make a ruler to decide what's in and what's out. If you're going to decide what is 12 inches, you got to start with something. And that first ruler becomes the ruler by which you make all the other rules, uh, all the other rulers. And so the canon of the New Testament was established by the Old Testament with the church fathers looking at the books. And there were some books a little bit after the apostles that even bore the name of the apostles, like the Gospel of Barnabas or the Gospel of Thomas that they rejected. Now, the Da Vinci Code and other conspiratorial people will like to make you think we're missing parts of the Bible, and the Roman Catholic Church messed it all up, and Jesus really had a bunch of wives and had children, and those became the Illuminati or something like that. Uh, That's a lie. Basically, this is what happened. The church receives letters from apostles. They know our apostles. They can see them, and they gather them together. Eventually, that becomes the New Testament. Over time, other people started writing letters in those apostles' names, like the Gospel of Peter, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Barnabas, and they judged them by the letters they had already had. And how did they know that the letters they had were already right? Is because they judged them by the Old Testament. How did they know the Old Testament was right? Because they judged it by the prophets that were there. Now, if you say to yourself, I don't trust any of that, well, then I'm going to blow your mind a little bit, and I'm going to say, how can you trust yourself? If you want to get all esoteric on me, let's just go to foundations of truth. How do you know you exist? Start. Go. Well, I'm here. Prove you're here and not in a dream. Well, I can touch myself. How do you know you're not in a, a, a lab, in the brain, in the vat, and then they're making you touch yourself? You see, if you want to get to the place where you're hyper-skeptic and you don't believe anything about reality, then you have no basis to make any judgment. Why are we arguing about the Bible? You could be a poached egg right now in a frying pan. You say, Pastor, nobody actually believes that. Smartest atheists actually believe that. I have it on my Facebook right now. Bertrand Russell, the famous atheist philosopher who was a fan of David Hume, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, atheist, uh, said that if we cannot understand science and induction and the foundation of it, we have no knowledge. And so when people say, I don't believe in God, I believe in science, what they've just shown you is they're an idiot and they don't understand either. Because if you don't have a God, you have no science. What are we measuring unless we know we're in reality? Reality? Reality has to be based on what is real. What is real? How do you know you're not in the matrix? Hume understood this. Bertrand Russell understood this. You cannot start doing science until you take for granted what you're doing science with. And by the way, science is not out there somewhere doing it like it's an alphabetical word called science on Sesame Street. Hello, I'm science, S-C-I-N-C-E, whatever, however you spell science. Science is actually done by people. 
People are made in the image of God that have minds. Well, if you don't believe in God, where's your mind? Where's your soul? How do animals understand science? How do chemicals understand logic? Where do those things belong anyway? What does justice have as a chemical component? Have you ever broke that down in a laboratory, split those atoms? You see, when you start denying truth, you don't have anything to stand on. So when we go back to the word of God, what we are saying is in the beginning, God. That's our foundation. First few books, uh, first few words of the, the first book of the Bible, in the beginning, God. Now, people may say, okay, I get that, that without God, we can't have any knowledge of anything. But how do we know it's the God of the Bible? There's a lot of gods competing for our time out there. It's like when I go to the Polish buffet there, you know, Warsaw, whatever restaurant you like. It's like, do I get the pierogies? Do I get the nagashni? Do I get the gwunky? You know, I just lost you all. But I got to talk about my culture every now and then, you know. I can't talk about hibaritos and burritos and arroz con candules every week, okay. I got I to gotta introduce you to a little Polish culture here, okay. So, so, so do I want the vegetable pierogi, the cheese pierogi, the meat pierogi? And so some people say, okay, well, we'll believe in there's a God out there, but is it the Muslim version? Is it the Hindu version? Is it, you know, the Christian version? How do you know? Start right here. You're going to learn about our Jesus. Our Jesus is the center of our religion. If you can disprove our Jesus, you can disprove our religion. If you can disprove our Jesus raising from the dead, you can disprove our religion. Our whole entire religious belief, if you like that word, I consider a relationship a better term, but our entire relationship or religion with our God is based upon Jesus Christ and these words here. Now, the Gospels. Sometimes people say, oh, they contradict each other. Oh, they got all this different information. Well, let me ask you a question. Matthew says there were two demon-possessed people. Mark says there was one demon-possessed people. Same story. We don't think it was a different one. It's actually the same story. Well, is that a contradiction or is that a compliment? You see, there are things that complement that are different but don't contradict. If there were two demon-possessed people, how many know there was at least what? One. But just because one author only mentions one, does that mean there wasn't two? There could have been 500 there. How many were there? We don't know. One talks about two. One talks about one. Is that a contradiction? No, it's a compliment. It's complimenting the scenario. Let's say you're watching a movie in surround sound. You got two speakers in the front, two in the back. There's people walking through the woods. You hear in the back the, the, you know, the cracking of the grass and, and all of those things. And then you hear in the front speakers two people talking. Are those sounds contradicting each other or are they complimenting the scene that the actors are in? The four Gospels are surround sound. They're not contradicting each other. They're just telling different stories. And then last, this brings me up to a, a thing that people bring up all the time. They say, well, what about the Bible? It's been changed. You know, it's been corrupted. It's, you know, there's all these different versions out there. Once again, you've met a spiritual nincompoop. They don't know what they're talking about. We have more manuscripts about the Bible than we do the history of Rome. Are you denying that? We have more manuscripts supporting Jesus raising from the dead than the exploits of Caesar. But you understand that. Now you may say, well, it's all in the Bible. Where's all the other secular historians? My friends, secular historians uh, agree with the Bible, but my point is the Bible is 27 unique books. If I took them all individually, that makes the case even worse. History of Rome sometimes is only three authors with, with each one of their own books. We have 27 books and I think over, what, 13 authors, all describing the same events. That is unheard of in all of antiquity. And so when we debate people like Bart Ehrman who write books like Misquoting Jesus, the simple question we ask him is, if you're going to be that skeptical of the Bible, do you do that to all history? And then we make them say yes. And then it's like, well, okay, I'm talking to a nincompoop now. You're denying all of history. What can I prove to you? You don't believe anything in history. 
Okay, so the moment you give up the Bible, you've given up all known history. And by the way, the majority, including Bart Ehrman, of all historians believe Jesus existed and that the Bible has the best records of Jesus. It's just a religious book for us. That's okay. You don't take it that way, but take it as what it is, fact. There's locations, there's genealogies, there's dates and places in, 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 the, in the Bible, and there's 27 books. And so when you look at it like that, it's actually an encyclopedia of Jesus' life, which no other character and history has it. You want to deny Jesus, you deny all history. You deny the truth of the word of God, you deny all rationality. Think you can get around those things? I double dog dare you to try. I double dog dare you to try. Tried. Smartest philosophers, smartest historians can't get around it. Quick story. Um, there was a man working as an investigative reporter. You can now watch his movie, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel. He's working there at the Chicago Tribune. His wife becomes a Christian out of some bad things going on in her life. He says, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this. He was a staunch atheist, you know. He said, I can't believe my wife became one of those Christians, man. He said, I'm going to go down to the church. I'm going to talk to this silly pastor, use my investigative reportive skills, you know, he's also a lawyer, and I'm going to figure this out, disprove the Bible, and then I'll get my wife out of that church. Uh, lo and behold, he thought he could do that in a weekend. About a year and a half, two years later, he became a Christian, and uh, now he's one of the best Christian authors of our time. And what convinced him, and what convinces so many others, is that when you study the life of Jesus, it's not put in the setting of myth. Uh, C.S. Lewis was an expert at myth. He was friends with J.R.R. Tolkien. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote, uh, you know, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe the Chronicles of Narnia, his best friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, wrote The Lord of the Rings. These guys knew everything about myth, and uh, J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian, and he was witnessing to C.S. Lewis, and he was a staunch atheist, and they would always get together and talk about their mythological stories and everything, and then J.R.R. Tolkien began to tell him, man, you need to look at Jesus as the origin of all myth, the true myth, in other words, the original that everybody's copying off of. You know, there's always stories about heroism and people doing good to overcome evil, and there's always some type of a messianic figure, you know, whether it's Luke Skywalker going to save the galaxy and defeat evil. And so what he told him was, start with Jesus and see if everything we've ever written and all the valor and all the character and, and everything we think is, you know, valuable and noble in this world, if it comes from Jesus. And C.S. Lewis says, the day he got saved, because he did get saved, the most reluctant man in, in, in all of England came to his knees and bowed before Jesus. He came reluctantly. Why? Because he thought he was too smart for Jesus, but he found out that Jesus was the answer to everything he had enjoyed. And then one of the things he talked about was, if you have a desire for something salty, there must be something salty for you to eat. If you have something like a desire or a taste for something sweet, there must be something sweet. And then a little bit deeper, if you desire justice, there must be a way for justice. And then he said, if there is no God, why do we all desire him? Why do we all desire him? Augustine said it like this, that all of our longings are answered in God, that he is the one that completes us. And so when we go to Matthew, Matthew is a gospel written primarily to Jews. And what he wants to do in this first chapter is tell us the legitimacy of Jesus as the Messiah. He is the most extensive gospel writer. He is going to start in chapter 1 giving us the genealogy of Jesus. These names are important. And then he's going to end in chapter 28 with Jesus commanding us to go to the nations. Now remember, when he's writing this, it's already 20 years after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So he's doing his best job, of course, led by the Spirit to teach us about Jesus. Y'all ready? Okay, hopefully I answered some of your questions. Let's go to Matthew chapter 1. 
Matthew chapter 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zara, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Abinadab, Abinadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Solomon, Solomon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. That's the first 14. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother who had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Everybody take a deep breath. (sighs) Having fun today reading all these names. After the exile to Babylon, that was the second 14, by the way. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheotel. Sheotel was the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, the father of Abahud. Abahud, the father of Eliakim. Eliakim, the father of Azar. Azar, the father of Zadok. Zadok, the father of Achim. Achim, the father of Elihud. Elihud, the father of Eliezer. Eliezer, the father of Mathon. Mathon, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the what? The Messiah, thank you. Verse 17, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Who is Matthew writing these genealogies to? What's the the audience of his gospels? I've already told you his gospel. Who is it? The Jews. What does he start in first one calling Jesus the Messiah? What did the Jews do to Jesus? Crucified him. It's almost like right at the beginning of his letter, he's starting to prod them a little bit. He's like, hey, guys, remember that one you killed? He's the Messiah. Look how many times he says it. Just follow along with me in the back there, sir. Verse number one, Jesus, the Messiah. Then you get to the end of the genealogy in verse 16. Mary, who was the mother of Jesus, who is called the what? The Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Then verse 18, this is the birth, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. (laughs) It's like, I don't care what y'all think, Jesus was the Messiah. Hey, by the way, did you know Jesus was the Messiah? And if you just forgot, Jesus is the Messiah. One more time, Jesus is the Messiah. And everybody says, Jesus is the Messiah. That's the first couple verses of this uh, book. What do you think Matthew believed about Jesus? He was the what? The Messiah, Hebrew Messiah. Some people think it's his last name. It's his title. What is it in the Greek? Messiah is what in the Greek? Christ. It's very beautiful to understand the term Messiah through the entire narrative of the Old Testament. The Messiah is the chosen one. He is the ultimate king of God's kingdom. He's the one that makes everything right. He's the one that everybody's been talking about. He's going to come a first time, and he's going to come a second time. And now Matthew talking to his own people, because Matthew himself is a Jew, is saying, hey guys, Jesus is the Messiah, and I'm going to prove he's a good Jew. Here's all of his family. Why would that be important to show all of his family? Number one, Jesus is not a myth. 
Have you ever seen like the Zeitgeist movie or things that talk about Jesus being a myth? Or he was similar to Horus or Mithra, another example of people being historical nincompoops. We love them, but as Mr. T said, we pity the fool. Don't be foolish. Literally, I will go out and tell you this, and you can study it. Everything they try to do to compare with Horus or other pagan gods to our Jesus is a flat-out lie. I would have no problem with comparisons. Ours is still the original. Okay, deal with it. But this is actually full-out lies. They didn't have 12 disciples. They didn't raise from the dead. Their mothers weren't virgin. All of it. It's just flat-out lies. Do not believe that. Our Jesus is so unique. That's number one. He's an actual historical person. Number two, what do these genealogies mention? Women. Now, think about this. He's writing it to Jews. Jews value women at this time very little. But guess what kind of women he's picking out? All pagan women. All pagan women. He is reminding these Jewish guys who live in a very patriarchal society that our Messiah has come from women, some of them being like Rahab, a prostitute, others being from pagan nations. God used them. What's the point of that? Because our Jesus is not just the Messiah of the Jewish people before the whole world. He is already skipping them ahead to the very end in Matthew 28 when Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all the nations. He's showing Jewish people, you missed it, you missed it, but Jesus is still the Messiah. Whether you believe it or not, guess what? He's still the Messiah. And whether or not you like it or not, he's still the Messiah. And guess what? He came through the line of all of these pagan cultures that God redeemed and used. Here's something that we need to stop and get an application from a genealogy is, what kind of genealogy are you going to use, uh, leave, and have for your family? What are they going to say about great-great-great-great-grandpa Jason when they tell your story? Some of you have not come from a godly genealogy. You can't trace back your people to those who worshiped God. You know, I look back in my genealogy. My parents are the first ones that are Christians. Before that, they were Roman Catholic. Before that, who knows what in the world they were doing. But now I can point back and go, it was my dad that came to Christ. It was my mother that came to Christ. And then I was raised knowing Jesus. And so names matter when you look at what the people's lives were. We look at these people's lives. We, we just read through like, you know, thousand plus years of human history like it was nothing. But my friends, you will be nothing in a thousand years from now should the Lord tarry. So what are you going to leave behind? And then not only in your natural family, but wouldn't it be amazing to go to heaven? And I think something like this will actually happen where God shows us our family tree and how all of us spiritually got into the kingdom of God. It's like Joe was led to the Lord by his mother. Lorraine Ryrostic was led to the Lord by such and such a pastor. This such and such a pastor was led to the Lord by such and such a person. This person was led to the Lord all the way back to Jesus. Let me ask you, how many family trees or branches on your trees have you begun to make? How many people have you won to the Lord? So God is going to hold us accountable on what we do for our earthly children, our physical children, and he's going to hold us accountable for what we do to leave a spiritual heritage. Because even if my children don't want to go to heaven, all those who do will be there and then upon the new earth forever. So if my children or wife don't want to go, I'm still going. Is there anybody in your life that's worth going to hell over? Like you would literally go, if you're not going to heaven, I don't want to go either. Let's all go to hell. Well, first of all, about hell, you're totally alone. So you can't be there hanging out. And it's a place of madness. It's a place of torment. It's a place of great pain. 
So those who think, I'm going to take my life to get away from the pain. No, you don't get away from the pain when you leave here. It's only worse. So I tell people who are suicidal, if you don't like it here, don't kill yourself because you'll certainly not like it where you're going. Are you listening to me? Find your peace now in God so that if you were to die because of an accident or for death, you can go to heaven and be in his presence. But taking your own life is self-murder. You don't go to a place that's better for you. That's the truth of the Bible. You'll learn about that in Matthew. Actually, what do you think? Let's do another survey. In Matthew, Jesus talks more about heaven or hell. Which one, folks? Talks two, three, four times more about hell than he does about heaven. Why is that? Is that because Jesus is sadistic? He actually gets so, so, so intense in one passage. We'll get to it. It's on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, it would be better if your hands caused you to sin to cut off your hands, to pluck out your eyes, than to go to hell with your entire body. He's literally telling you it is better to go there as stump, as a stump man or a stump boy or girl, than to go to hell. That's how serious he gets. So you think Jesus is... Just Barney? No. You know what you'll also notice in the book of Matthew is that Jesus gives ultimatums all the time. And he ought to if he's the Messiah. He's a king. He's not like on one of those shows where you got to vote for him. You know, my kids love America's Got Talent. Don't we, kids? Yes, and they love to do their America's Got Talent stuff before the show, you know, and I have to vote and do all this stuff with them. And then they cry, you know, and it gets really intense. But, but here's the thing. We're watching right now, you know, the big winners one, you know, because the, the normal show runs during the summer, and now they're bringing back all these winners or people who did really good, and, you know, you vote for them. And it's kind of like all the same, whether it's American Idol or whatever. Whenever it gets these shows to people voting for them, it's always like you can see, you know, like the people are vulnerable. And you're like, vote for me, please, you know, number three, whatever. And we think, we think like Jesus is doing that. Let me in your heart. I'll be your homeboy. I promise I'm better than Buddha. Like, keep me around like a heart. No, dude, Jesus is not doing that. As you read the book of Matthew, like Jesus tells people, it's my way or the highway. Jesus goes on and on and on in one chapter in Matthew chapter 23 against the Jews. He calls them snakes. He calls them vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He calls them children of the devil. He is like so serious about what he has to say. But then at the same time, you'll see a little bit later on, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, as a mother hen gathers her chicks, oh, I wish that I could gather you. The reason why I stop here and, and say it all about the genealogy is because Jesus was a real person born in the flesh. And it really mattered what the people did before him because that's why Jesus wasn't an Egyptian. That's why Jesus wasn't an Italian. Jesus came through the group of people, starting with Abraham, that God had picked for this lineage for the Messiah to come. Quick little thing, if you ever read your Bible, you might see that Luke's is totally different once it gets to David. If you scroll up a little bit on this passage, you'll see a highlight link for uh, generations. It's because Luke gives you the genealogy of Mary. Now, why would Luke give you the genealogy of Mary, because as we study the life of Jesus, is Joseph technically his father? No, because in a sexual relationship at conception, father gives seed, woman gives egg. But in this scenario, where does seed come from? Holy Spirit. So it's cool to know like he was raised by Joseph in an earthly home of a Jew that came from the seed of David fulfilling all of those prophecies. But technically, if he was given, you know, the flesh body from his mother Mary, you've got to check her genealogy as well. So Luke makes sure to do that. So you can go and check that out. Now let's keep reading. The genealogy was pretty cool, right? 
Amen. Verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. A couple quick things to notice here is how serious they took engagement because it almost would be a contradiction. They weren't married yet, but now they're going to divorce. Why is that? I thought you only get divorced after you get married. Not in their culture. They took the engagement so serious that if you were to break it off, it would be the same as a divorce. How much as our culture watered that down today. I have a book in the back called Date Like a Christian. You can get it for free online. We need to understand how serious dating relationships are. Notice this about Joseph. He doesn't want to disgrace her. That means he's a good man, and he keeps the law, so he knows it's not his baby because they have not been doing the thing before their marriage. Come on, how many know we need to have that kind of integrity in our relationships, not having sex before marriage? Now, Hear this. Mary says it came from the Holy Spirit. Is Joseph right off the top believing that? No. He respects her. He honors her. But he's like, I don't know what you did, but you pregnant and I didn't do it. I'm just going to respect you enough and divorce you on the side. Now, thankfully, an angel shows up. Watch this right here. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Isn't that amazing? Now, let's just stop and think about all the religious views people have about Jesus. Muslims say he was a good prophet, and they actually believe he was born of a virgin. Uh, Jews think he was a good Jewish man, but not the son of God, nor born of a virgin. Hindus say Jesus is just one of many incarnations that God has come in the form of. And that's why they believe in things like Avatar. You see the movie Avatar? You have Sully, a dude, coming into the body of an alien. That's literally what incarnation is. And the Hindus have believed that gods have been doing that forever. And they think uh, Jesus is just one of those. Now, if you look to the Jewish faith, it cannot be one of many because our God is singular, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So he's not popping down. You know, Zeus is not coming one time and then Krishna another time. And then, uh, um, uh, you know, these different gods, of course, were all in the name slipped my mind at once. Um, the monkey face God and the elephant face God. Does anybody know these Hindu gods? Vishnu is a, a main god. Who's the elephant god? Why is my mind going blank? No, no, look up elephant man god. Look him up, Hindu. I just want to get his name out of my head. What is that silly guy's name? I've been, to, I've been to India three times. They have gods the size of Statues of Liberty all over the place. Gods in their, in their cars. You know, you get into the taxi cab. There is no separation anywhere in that culture. Uh, Ganesh. So Ganesh does this. Uh, this monkey god does this. No, no, no. When you look at the Bible and we're looking at this scenario here, it's a very unique situation. So here's some of the things that I like to ask people, Buddhists, Muslims, whatever. I say, oh, you all believe in Jesus and he was a good prophet. I go, why does our book say he was born of a virgin? Why was that important? 
all other people are born a certain way. Even like when Abraham and Sarah get together at an old age to have a child, they still have to get it on for the baby to come. There is no miraculous seed given. And I love blowing up Muslims' worldview like this because I love Muslims. wrote a book about it by God's grace. And I say, Muhammad's the greatest prophet. Oh, yeah, but Jesus is a prophet too. Yeah, he's a good prophet. Why was Jesus born of a virgin but not Muhammad? See, Muslims copycat Christianity and leave out the stuff they don't like so they can keep doing what Muhammad wanted them to do. But that's a good question, isn't it? Why would you believe this man is virgin born and yet there's a greater prophet named Muhammad that was born of a sinner just like everybody else? Why does Jesus get to skip all of human history and all of the seed of man and get directly dropped in by the seed of the Holy Spirit? we got to go to another gospel. Let's go to Matthew, Matthew's friend, John. Go to John chapter 1, verse 1. When you look at the four Gospels, you'll see that three are similar. They're called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There's a lot of theories about why they're so similar. That's another discussion. But John's material in his Gospel is about 80% unique. Here's my simple reason why. The Synoptic Gospels came early, and they were primarily written to tell the historical narrative of Jesus. By the time John comes many years later to write his gospel, he wants to give you the theological understanding, not the geological understanding, um, not, not geo, it's uh, genealogical. Genealogical. Is that how you say the word? Genealogical. Thank you. Thank you for being patient with me. It's one of those days. So... He starts off with the what foundation? Theological. What does Matthew start off with? Genealogical. There you go. Look at John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the what? The Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Go to verse 14. And the Word became what? Flesh. Come on, keep up. Thank you. And the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Go to verse 18, still the same chapter. No one has ever seen God. Come on. No one has ever what? Seen God, but the one and only Son, who is Himself what? God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made Him known. Go back to the passage in Matthew. Why is Jesus virgin born? Because God coming in the flesh has to come in perfect flesh. Perfect flesh had been lost from Adam and Eve. Why is his name going to be called Jesus? Because he's going to save us from our sins. He has to restart the human race. Whose image was the human race made in to begin with? Jesus's. God specifically, uh, God, yes, in general, but God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who was the person that made us in his image? He was the, the Son. So before the Son took on flesh, we were made to be like him. And remember, in the body of man, or rather in the dust of man, there was no soul until God what? Breathed. The Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit brought the body to life. What is the Holy Spirit now doing in Mary? Bringing the Son into the flesh. And this is why we believe that at conception is personhood. You don't need personhood with the form of your body. So some people say, well, I agree with abortion you know, all the way up until about six weeks, and then after that, it doesn't look like a person. You know, I'll agree we shouldn't kill that. But here's the thing. They're not understanding metaphysics. Metaphysics is understanding things beyond just nature. Is your spirit confined just to your form? Meaning, if I cut off your arm, do you have less of your spirit? 
If I cut off your other arm, do you have less of your spirit? So why would it be hard to imagine that your spirit can encompass the fertilized egg at conception? Because when did Jesus become in the mother's womb at conception? When did Jesus, God of the entire universe, subject his being to a body? When did he do that? The moment the Holy Spirit came. So you see that little microscopic embryo, that is where the person starts. So what happens at conception? Personhood. What happens then in the womb? You are formed in your body. Psalm 139 says it like this. You formed me in my mother's womb. Who's the me talking? The one at conception. Because remember, at some point in this world, unless you're here when God comes in the rapture, you're going to lose your body and be a disembodied spirit. And so your spirit doesn't have to be the same size of your body. How big does heaven have to be? Well, as big as God wants our spirits to be. Spirits could be smaller than little pieces of uh, atoms, or spirits could be bigger than the entire universe. Do you understand? Spirits are only shaped to be a form to what God gives them. So how big will heaven be? Sometimes my, my kids ask me, how big is God? Because they want to see God like being big, like some like superhero over the universe. God's spirit can be infinite in size. Do you understand? And it could be infinite and small because everything we keep dissecting and dissecting and dissecting, guess where God's power and wisdom still is at? So God is at the smallest level and at the biggest level. So where does personhood come into the universe? It comes at conception, no matter how small that is. Just like as you get bigger, you don't become more of a person. You just become more formed and shaped. And some of us get a little bit bigger shapes as we get older, right? And then we lose parts of our shape as we get older and keep going like this. So your shape does not determine your personhood. God's spirit, uh, God giving you a spirit in your body determines that. And that's why Jesus, as a person, is deposited into the human race right there, which brings up a whole other uh, group of questions. How did God become man and still remain God. A lot of times when we talk to other religions, they think we're believing that a man called Jesus became God. And that's what cult leaders do a lot. Like if you study Apollo Quibloy or the Jesus of Puerto Rico, he's died now and went to hell. Uh, but if you study other false Jesuses, it's always like, I was like on some spiritual quest and then Jesus told me, I am inside of you and you are me. And now I'm supposed to tell the world, I am Jesus. That's not how it works. That's a cult. Jesus is not walking around like as a man named Jesus and then one day goes, hey, I'm the son of God. God, yes, I'm God. Worship me, brothers and sisters. The eternal God in spirit came and took on flesh. Then people think I'm talking about a square becoming a circle. And they go, that's a contradiction. A square can't be a circle. It's one or the other. They're not understanding me. Can God take on flesh like you put on cloth called clothes? Hello, I'm asking you a question. Can God put on flesh and still remain God, 100% God? Yes. And then people read the Bible and go, well, if he's God, why did he get tired? Does God get tired? If he's God, why does he say, I don't know when I'm coming back? He says, only the Father knows. And can you kill God who was on the throne if he's being killed? All just once again reminding us people are spiritual nincompoops. If God becomes man, is he going to come here as some superman? No, he's going to humble himself to be like us. What's the point of him coming? To get back what we lost. So what does Philippians 2 really say clearly? He limits his knowledge as man. 
He purposely limits his knowledge. He limits his, limits his power. He limits his ability. Does he ever stop being all-powerful? No, let me give you an example. I wrestle with my kids about the size of yours. And guess what? Every, every now and then, Arnold, they win. I let him win. Does that not mean I couldn't pick him up and throw him across the room? No, I limit myself in my power to relate to them. And so we call this the hypostatic union, God and man joining together in the person of Jesus Christ. So God the Son had always existed, but now he's going to take on flesh and be known to us as Jesus. The name Jesus is quite unique. A lot of people get hung up on it who start studying the Bible and think they know stuff. They say something like, well, did they speak English back then? What was really his name? Well, technically they probably spoke Aramaic because remember they took trips to Assyria and Babylon. And so their Hebrew, which was a Semitic language, got morphed into a more popular language of that time, Aramaic. Very similar like how Latin kind of morphed into Spanish. Latin being more of the classical version, Spanish being more of the popularized version. Hebrew was their classic language, but Aramaic was what all the other nations spoke, and it kind of morphed into that. So his name was somewhere in that vicinity of probably being Yeshua. And then people get really technical, and they go, well, Yeshua translated into English is what? Joshua, somebody knows. So why aren't we praying in Joshua's name? Why do we pray in Jesus' name? And then people try to come up with all kinds of conspiracies. Let me make it real simple for you. When you read the Old Testament in Greek, which was translated 200 years before the time of Jesus, because Greek was a real popular language too, when you go to the book of Joshua, guess what they call Joshua? Jesus. So it goes Joshua, Hebrew, Yeshua, to Jesus. So number one, what does that tell us? The Jews of that time had no problem taking one language and translating it into another. So whatever we do now with this name Jesus, there's not going to be more special power or more Jesus sauce on it, okay? More Holy Ghost sauce on the way you say it. And some people will do that. You have to say it like this to count because there's only one name given to men under heaven by which they might be saved. And it's the name of Yeshua. It's the name of Joshua. It's not Jesus. That's an English word. Jay didn't even exist back then. How many have ever heard stuff like that? Okay, a few of you. So I'm talking to you. All folly. All folly. Number one. Number one. When they translated from Hebrew to Greek 200 years before Jesus, they had no problem going Yahshua to Jesus for Joshua in the Bible. No problem. Number two, the New Testament Bible that we get quoted more than any other book, the translation is the Septuagint, the Greek translation. So it's okay. Now, why do we have the English word Jesus? It's because when it went original in the New Testament, it wasn't Hebrew, it was, it was Greek. It's original in the Greek. We have no uh, ancient manuscripts in Hebrew or Aramaic. All the time period, the 5,000 documents, they're in Greek. And in Greek, his name is Jesus. And when you go from Jesus to English, what are you going to say? Jesus. Now, if you want to be appropriate to the culture, you can call him Yeshua, no problem. You can call him Joshua. Might sound weird in the name of Joshua. Amen. Who did you pray to? Joshua. Who in the world is Joshua? Because here's another thing that's going to get a little trippy for some of you. We're not superstitious by the syllables we say in a language that give us power. The power is the faith in the person, the Son of God. So yes, just like how you change Jesus to Jesus in Spanish, it's the same way. His name is Joshua, Joshua, Jesus, Jesus. Pick one and live for him. But there is something very special about why that name is chosen. 
And it's not because of the Bible character named Joshua who marches around the walls of Jericho. Go to Zechariah chapter 3. There's a very peculiar situation that happens in the Old Testament prophet of Zechariah. This is after the Babylonian captivity. It's towards the end of the Old Testament. There's something very unique that happens with him. He gets a prophecy about a high priest named Joshua, but these this guy named Joshua starts getting attributes that can't just be him. I believe that's why God gave that name to fulfill this prophecy about a really awesome person. Let's watch. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will make, I will put Put fine garments on you. Then he said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. Now watch out and clothe him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you walk in obedience to keep me and my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. Watch this. And I will give you a place standing among those standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you who are men symbolic of things to come. Symbolic of what? Things to come. Symbolic of what? Things to come. I am going to bring my servant, the branch. See the stone I have set in front of you, Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. <laughs> That's deep. See, some of the people didn't get that. You got that. So you had to go to Bible college to get that. So they're just like, what was this dude about Joshua? Now he's going to, you know, sins are going to go away in a single day. Why do you think it wasn't Bob? Why do you think it was Joshua? Why was that his name? Because there was a prophecy about this high priest who was going to do awesome things. But here's the deal. He's a sinner himself. That's why he's got to be changed and clothed in this vision as well. But something's going to happen on a single day when all sins are taken away. Let's not go back to Matthew, but just listen. When we hear Matthew speaking about the one who's going to be called Joshua, Jesus, the Bible says he will save his people from their sins. And it says here that there are seven eyes on this stone before this earthly guy named Joshua. There's a stone with seven eyes on it. Go to Revelation chapter 5. You ever heard about seven eyes before? Anybody read their Bible before? Are you guys still with me? Okay, go to Revelation chapter 5. Who has seven eyes? Did you know that the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, before the throne of God, has seven eyes? See, the Bible doesn't contradict. It confirms. Go to Revelation chapter 5, and you will see the very thing that was being prophesied by Hezekiah that, that Matthew is talking about is in the person of Jesus. Now, look at this. John is writing. He sees heaven. You know, this is the end times right here. And in chapter 5, verse 6, it says, Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. He's going to save his people from their sins in one day. How is he going to do that? 
by giving his life as a lamb on Passover. Are you with me? Then I saw a lamb looking at it as it had been st- slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and elders. Remember those associates that were symbolic of things to come? Those are the real things right there, the elders in heaven. Let's keep going. It says, the lamb had what? Seven horns and what? Seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. But he saw it on a stone, not a lamb. Let's go back to the passage in Matthew, and I'll show you Psalm 118. Go to Psalm 118, verse 22. Do you guys like reading your Bible? How many like the Bible when it makes sense? I hope that this is making sense to you. Look at Psalm 118, verse 22. This is a popular psalm that Jesus even quotes in Matthew. Remember, the stone will have seven eyes, and through that branch, and remember, we are in that branch and grafted in John 15 says, but it says that one day through that branch, all sin is taken away. Now look at the stone here, verse 22. The stone the builders, what? Rejected has become what? The cornerstone. Why was Jesus named Jesus? Because Joshua means uh, the Lord saves. And Joshua, this high priest, had all these amazing things said to him, and that was now going to be fulfilled in the actual person of Jesus, God coming in the flesh. Let's go back to the passage now. I wish I could take more time with you there, but I hope that you're getting something out of this. This is still the introduction. Look at your neighbor and say, the message is coming. I just got to finish reading before I preach the message. I'm sorry. I just got to make sure you understand the context. Uh, Verse 22, all this, now notice this. It says, and he shall be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then to summarize it, it says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophets. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Now get it. All of this. So as he's breaking down why he came from the lineage of David, why he's breaking down why he was born of a virgin, while he's breaking down why his name's going to be Jesus, how he'll save people from the sins, he says, this can be summed up in this one phrase, God is with us. Go to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah, another prophet, speaking about the Messiah. The Messiah will not just be another man doing a good thing. He's not going to be a Gandhi or a Martin Luther King Jr. This is who the Messiah is going to be. Look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The what? The what? The virgin. The what? The virgin will do what? Conceive and give birth to a son and will call him God with us. Now, some people have been named after God all throughout the Old Testament. El is a name for God. Yah is a name for God. Ezekiel, El, God is in his name. Uh, Isaiah, Yah is in his name. God is in his name. Jeremiah, Yah is in his name. So a lot of people have been named with God in their name. But this is very different. God is going to be here. It's not I have a name that says God is with us, God listens to us, God hears us. No, it is God is here. Hello, there he is. If we don't know, go to the next two chapters. Go to Isaiah 9. What comes first, 7 or 9? What comes first, 7 or 9? So whatever is said about this person in 7 has to apply to them in 9, correct? Go to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is what? Jesus was born, but look, and a son will be given. Was the son born? No, the child was born. Understand the difference. 
child born, little baby Jesus, born, son of God, always existed, given. I got to go to this side of the room. This side, I don't, I think, sleeping on it. It's, it's the Bible. I know you guys probably want to do something else by now. Uh, Super Bowl today. Okay, this is my Super Sunday, so hang in here with me. Okay, uh, child is born, baby Jesus, born, right? We're not denying that. Born, son of God, given, always existed. Y'all don't get it. Child is born. Do, do words mean thing in, in, in our English language? And they come from the Hebrew here. For to us, a child is born. Jesus was born, right? But did he start existing when he was born? No, because he was given. That means he existed before that. The son is given when the child is born. Child is born. You see a child, but the son of God eternally has now been given to you in the child. Hope you got that. And the government will be on his shoulders. Okay, well, this guy's going to be pretty cool. He's going to be a governor. Let's just see, see if it keeps applying to, you know, just any ordinary person or God. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, well, Dr. Phil's a Wonderful Counselor. Uh, next one, Mighty. Oh, well, we just lost it there. Uh, this Emmanuel is not just going to be a cool guy ruling and reigning. He's actually going to be Mighty God. Now, if you go around calling somebody on this earth Mighty God and you're a Jew, you deserve to be stoned for blasphemy. Hence, why did they put Jesus on the cross? What was the charge against him? Blasphemy. But he was the Son of God. Don't you love Matthew now starting it right at verse 1? Hey, boys, the one you thought was blaspheming, that's the Son of God. That's the Messiah. That's God with us. He is the Joshua that we've all been hearing all about. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. That can't just be somebody ordinary. That has to be somebody extraordinary. Going back to the passage of Matthew, all this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Then Joseph woke up. He did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. How many have ever heard of one of the Marian dogmas, which is her perpetual virginity? That's a lie. First of all, let's just start right here. Did you ever hear of that? Marian dogmas, perpetual virginity. That's one of them. That's a big deal. How many of you were raised Catholic? Were you guys not paying attention? Maybe that's why you're in this church now. The priest is going to get upset and say, you never listened to me. That's why you listen to that Protestant church. They actually tried to teach you stuff when you were there, and one of them was is that she never had sex. This Bible contradicts their tradition. Not only that, in the book of Matthew, we're going to meet Jesus' brothers and sisters because Joseph and Mary did get it on. And two of those brothers, half-brothers, because obviously Jesus was born of the seed of God, divine nature. They were born of the seed of Joseph. Two of them get saved, become authors of the New Testament, James and Jude, brothers of Jesus. Church history contradicts the Roman Catholic Church, and so does this Bible. Why do they mention it unless she consummated at some point? This would make no sense unless she did. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, until what does that mean happened after they got, uh, after Jesus was born? They had, they had sex, right? And he gave him the name Jesus. Are you all ready for the message? Okay. I will preach this message a lot shorter than the introduction. Would you put up the picture of the cross, please? How many of you love Jesus here today? 
Okay, I want you to notice this. We just read that he will save his people from their sins. Now, remember, the Bible says he loves the whole world, and he died for all of the world's sins, but only his people get their sins forgiven. That means you have to choose to be his people. If you do not choose Jesus to be your Messiah, even though your sins were paid for, you will be held responsible for them. Here's the perfect example. Imagine Bill Gates has a good day, and he says, guess what? I'm going to pay off every mortgage of every person that goes to Metro Praise International. I'm going to pay off every student debt. I'm going to pay off every car loan, and I'm going to pay off every credit card debt. How many are having a good day? Amen. Now, all you have to do, Bill Gates says, is just come, shake my hand, and say thank you, and the debt will then be attributed to your account. Right now, it's all been paid, but it has not been entered as debt-free until you receive it from me. The, the thank you, you give me the thank you, and then I now eliminate it to your account. So they say, we're holding your debt against you, even though all the money is there, even though everything has been paid for you, but you cannot have that attributed to your account because of whatever his reason is. If you do not go to Bill Gates and you're still paying your mortgage, who's the idiot? Who's the fool? You are. Because he said, everything is paid. This is the final thing you do. And then it's attributed to you, and now it's yours. I don't need to put more money down. I've already got your money. I've already done it. What does Jesus say on the cross? It is what does he say on the cross? It is finished. So what starts here as we see Jesus taking away the sins of the world is finished where? On the cross. All sins are finished on the cross. So here's the deal. Has Jesus taken your personal sins and have your sins been forgiven or are you still carrying those things around? Now, if you notice this, Jesus does not say, I'm going to forgive you of your sins. It is not just forgiveness. It is actual salvation from it. See, a lot of you just want Jesus to forgive you of your sins so you could go back out and sin again, to be forgiven again, to go back out and sin again. As if Jesus' fountain of blood here is just to wash your dirty, filthy hands so you can go back out and sin again and go back to his blood to be forgiven. The Bible says he came to save you from your sins. You are supposed to be delivered from your sins, taken away from your sins. The old timers used to say it like this, have you been saved? And if you said, yes, sister, brother, I've been saved, they would ask you back, then what has he saved you from? You're supposed to say what you've been saved from. I was saved from pornography. I was saved from stinking thinking. I was saved from selfish ambition. I was saved from idolatry. I was saved from bitterness. Come on, somebody. Jesus saved me. Bible says he came to save us from our sins. Not to keep us in sin, not to keep coming back, though we can receive forgiveness as often as we truly desire it, but it's not a get out of hell free card. Salvation from sins is a deliverance from it, a new life. Can you put up the next slide, please? This is what Christianity is supposed to be like. And children, if, uh, parents, if you've got children in the back, go and get them now, please, so we don't uh, make them upset in the back because we've got to let them go as children's workers. H- here's the deal. We start off with Jesus, 
and there's all this darkness around us, unbelief, sin, shame, hurt, self-justification, pride, fear, men, rebellion. And what's supposed to happen is the light of Christ is supposed to shine in our lives and we're supposed to see the cross and we're supposed to see his love and we're supposed to see his redemption. And as we serve him more, the things of this world are to become more and more dim, more and more pushed out by the light of God. It actually says it like this, that the righteous, the righteous are like the first light of day shining brighter to the full light of sun. That's what the Bible says we're supposed to be like. Second Corinthians says, but we all with open faces are as in a glass beholding the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory. Somebody say from glory to glory. So we're supposed to be like him even as the spirit of the Lord does this in our life. Go to the next slide, but this is what many of you are dealing with today. You say, I believe Jesus saves me from my sin. He's everything. I want to live for Jesus. Oh, but then all these problems come and I can barely see him. Jesus, you're so small. And my problems, they are so big. How often have you in this church started off saying, I, I got Jesus. I love Jesus. I see Jesus. And five months later, this is itty bitty Jesus in your heart. See, did real Jesus change? No, but your perspective of Jesus changed. See, instead of Jesus being greater than your unbelief, now your unbelief is huge, but your Jesus is small. The real Jesus is always bigger than unbelief. The real Jesus is always bigger than our sins. You might say, Pastor, what does that mean as a Christian? You've never sinned? You've been sinless? No, I've sinned since being a Christian, but I have sinned less. I have sinned less. There are things breaking off of my life and that have changed that I am never going back to. I will never look at pornography again. The last time I did was 98. I will never swear again. I will never get into a fight again, unless it's for self-defense, so don't try me. I will never, <laughs> I will never get drunk again. See, but some of y'all like, I love Jesus, but I'm still getting drunk and having sex with my girlfriend. I love Jesus. And then I'm still doubting whether or not Jesus even exists. I love Jesus, but I'm super rebellious towards the church. I love Jesus, but I feel really ashamed and hurt. I love Jesus. And your life is just like this. Jesus wants you to do the other way. You can check that Hebrew scripture out when you have time. Let's go back to the other one, the way it's supposed to be. Here's how I want to leave us today. Chapter one. We got 27 more chapters to go, y'all. I got all year to get us there because there's going to be some parts. I got to break down. It's going to take me more than one week to preach some of these chapters. But I just want to know, is there anybody here today, as the band comes, please, that wants to have less of sin and more of Jesus in their life? Because Jesus came for that. Just think about it. Come on, Derry. Think about it, Anna, Anahi. Think about it, Salvador. Was the purpose of Jesus to make us rich, and he will make his people rich, and he will make your life easy. You will walk on a bed of roses. No, what was the very first thing Matthew tells us that the angel told Joseph? He will save his people from their sins. See, we all need that Jesus. We all need the Jesus that saves. I know down deep inside you really want that, but sometimes you pretend like you don't. Sometimes you pretend like your sin is what makes you happy. But you know, that's really make-believe. Because you know down deep inside there's nothing that God commanded you not to do that really makes you happy like Jesus, satisfies your soul. There's nothing like it. And so when we go through 
the ups and downs of life. It's really not Jesus that's changing. What's changing is the way we see him. And this is what I want to ask you guys for the next year, all of 2019. I want to ask you, do you want to see Jesus more than you have ever seen him before? Because that's what I want to do, man. He's infinitely great, infinitely great. I feel like after 20 plus years of serving Jesus that I'm still looking like this. I feel like if you would compare knowledge to an ocean, I feel I got a drop. I want so much more. I want to see so much more. You see, when we see Christ so much greater than our sin, we see what we were made for. We were made to be forgiving, not to be bitter. We were made to be full of joy. Do you notice that in childhood development? Nancy, would you bring me up, uh, Titus, please? Childhood development experts will tell you the smile ignites so many neurons in their brain. It's part of their development. Come here, little buddy. What's up, little buddy? Can I hold you? What's up, little buddy? Everybody look at this right here. This little buddy was meant to smile. This little buddy, he's going to be a little sassy for us now, but that's okay. You were meant to be like this child. Joy is supposed to be your default. Joy, peace, smile. Even today as adults, when we smile, we release all of that good serotonin, those goodies in our neurons and our brain. You are meant to live in glory. The world is painful. It's dark. But Jesus came to save you from it. Now, does that mean we're not going to be serious in life and fight evil and, and have to, you know, discipline our children or whatever? Yeah, that's true. But the Bible says even the most wicked thing that was done to Jesus, what was he motivated by? It wasn't anger. The Bible says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. So you talk to any tough guy, anybody that's in the military, anybody that's out there fighting, the ones that make it, the ones that we admire, they're not fighting for murder's sake. They're not fighting for, for the sake of blood. They're fighting for their family. They're fighting for what they love, not just what they hate. And see, you were made to love God. Yeah, you're going to hate sin along the way, and you're going to rebuke the devil. You're going to do some spiritual warfare. It's going to be real. But literally, the Bible says you are to be born again and to be made like this child. This is who we are spiritually. And as we grow, we see more and more of Jesus. So even if you're new to this church, and this is a new sermon series for you, maybe you've never even been a part of one where we're going to read the whole book of the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter, this is how I want you to see yourself. Because after 20 years, I'm probably just about like a toddler. So humble yourself. Start right here and start learning to embrace God. Smile. Find joy. Repent of your sin when you do it. And as we go into these other chapters and we start learning his teachings, let's be as eager as one, as a child, as one of these children would be eager to learn from me.
the ways of our house. Let's learn the ways of God's world. God is our master. He made us to follow him. The Bible simply says it like we were meant to dwell forever in his presence. The Bible says as his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you didn't have a good upbringing and didn't have a dad that loved you and spoiled you like I'm spoiling this little buddy right here, God's going to fix that too, okay? Because I know some of you are like, man, I wish I had a dad that did that. Listen to me. You have a heavenly father that will outlast what I'll ever do for him. Amen? Let's all stand up and give it up for Jesus today. We love you, Lord. Come on, put your hands together if you love Jesus. Amen. Altar workers, would you come, please? Come on, let's become children of God this year. If you haven't been born again, you can be born again today. And if you've already been born again, I want to ask you, do you want to grow in your faith? Do you want to have the smile of God upon you? Do you want to grow in your maturity and understand him more? Start reading the book of Matthew because it's all about Jesus. As the band begins to play right now, if you're here today and you need Jesus, come on forward. If you've already accepted Jesus, but you want him to save you from your sins as a Christian because you're tired of going up and down in life, come on forward. We'll dismiss in just a moment. But as the band plays, just make your way up here right now. Who wants to see Jesus in a greater way this year? And it's not afraid to reach out and get prayer. Thank you, band. Let's begin to sing as they come. Come on, don't be ashamed. Be like a child today. You're special to God. Thank you, Lord. Nothing can separate us from your love today, God. We belong to you. Can separate me. Just like nothing can separate me from this, from my love for this, my son. Nothing can separate you from God's love today. He's the greatest father. He's the greatest savior. There's nobody like him. You didn't come here today by accident. Even if others are being prayed for, come on up and wait. We're not in a hurry. Others will get to you. Our leaders will get to you, but come on up. And we'll dismiss in a few moments. Come on, the rest of us, let's worship. Jesus.